Hi everyone, I'm Tyler Edwards and welcome back to Gather, Share, Teach. In this episode, we're going to learn all about the fieldwork used to collect data for the Hubbard Brook water chemistry record from two experts on the subject who have been doing this work for decades. First off, we'll hear from Ian Holm, the site manager of Hubbard Brook, who's the go-to person for just about everything related to the forest. I guess my first question for you is, when did you know that you wanted to work with the Forest Service? Like, how did you come to this job and that type of story? Okay. In high school, I knew I always wanted to be a forester. And I really wanted to make sure I wanted to be a forester and get some money for school. So I went into the U.S. Coast Guard. And I worked in the Coast Guard as a mechanic or an engineer for seven years. Sailed all seven seas and worked on rescue missions and all sorts of things during that time. And then I went to the University of New Hampshire, uh, landed a job at the Forest Service lab there and started acid washing sample bottles. And then they needed a tech at Hubbardbrook Experimental Forest. So I started working here in 1990. And basically been working here ever since. Yeah, um, I'm a forester. Mm-hmm. Uh, classified as a forester, but I'm basically a jack of all trades. So, right. you know, I'm the mechanic, I'm the chainsaw operator, I'm the person that helps people cite their experiments, I design experiments, I do data logger work, I weld, I fix all our fleet of equipment, I'm a tree climber. I'm a tower climber. I'm also the purchasing agent, so I keep track of our budget. Also, facilities manager. I'm the point person for anybody calling here asking questions. If they're lost in the woods or whatever, you know, I'm the guy that does that. I think that kind of encompasses most of what I do. Yeah, that's a lot. That's a lot. (laughs) And I'm also the deputy fire chief on the local fire department and all those people think I do is drive snowmobiles around, (laughs) shoot leaves out of trees and they think it's all crazy. Right. I hear that you've done like a ton of rescuing (laughs) in the the past (laughs) years. I was wondering if you had like a a craziest rescue story. We have a lot, you know, a really good road system and trail system. You know, I think they're all just kind of like somebody just made a little mistake and rolled over or, or got stuck in a ditch. Or like Emily didn't put it in four wheel drive when they got stuck out there. Who oh, no. The vehicle. And then, you know, you go out there and, you know, they say, oh, it's stuck. I can't get it out. And then I go out there the next day and I put in four wheel drive and just drive it out of the. No. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I bet they, that makes them feel really confident in their driving skills. I also want to tell you a story. The senior research specialist of Hubbard Brook, who's also the field technician who's responsible for the insect emergence data that I've spent many, many hours going through. Well, I came to this job. Um, I was working for Fish and Game in Massachusetts, and my husband and I were ready to start a family. So we had been recreating in the White Mountains pretty much every weekend. We had a Volkswagen bus and we'd come up and hike and camp. And at, at one point, we're like, you know, 
why don't we live here? We come up here every weekend and we just thought it was a nice place to start a family. So we actually quit our jobs and, and moved. We just had no plan. We just kind of went for it and it, it worked out amazingly. By chance, one day I was looking at the yellow pages. You may not know what the yellow pages are, the phone book. <laughs> and I saw an, um, a listing for the Cary Institute of Ecosystem Studies and it caught my eye. So I called and Don Busso answered the phone and I just called and said, hey, you know, what, what's this place all about? I've never heard of it. And we had a great conversation. He, he asked me to come and visit and there happened to be a summer field technician position open at the time. It was just complete being at the right place at the right time. And I got the job and it turned into a full-time position and I haven't left since. That's so wonderful. Yeah, I was, I, I'm very, very fortunate. And I also, I'm, I'm sort of in the unique position because before me, there was a, a turnover in technicians in my position. It was, most people viewed that job as like a stepping stone to go on to grad school or, or, or whatever, but I stayed and I, I love my job. I love the lab work I do. I love going into the forest every week. And I think that that has some value having the same technician be part of the long-term record to be able to see the changes over the long-term and the short-term and doing the lab work all the same. And I think that has some value to it. Absolutely. I'm so happy I see your face because I'm like, you're the one that collects the bugs. Yes, <laughs> I am. <laughs> Are you the one who gets them like from the forest and puts them out? Yes, yes. And I have my binders are filling up quickly. So since you brought that up, can you tell me about how the data collection for the tiny data set that we are working on together works? Absolutely. I'm a field person and a lab person, and I am not, my role is not a science communicator. So this is, I guess, good practice for me. Yeah. So as part of my job, the main role of my job is to visit all the watersheds on a routine basis, which is weekly, uh, to collect the, the water samples and the precip samples. And since I visit those sites, also, I, that is when I put out the insect traps at the same time. It's, it's pretty simple. There are binder clips hanging off of branches of the trees along each stream segment. And of course, I collect the water sample first because I have to cross the stream several times to collect the insect traps. And then and I just simply walk up to the, the sticky traps and open up this, the uh, binder sheet and slap it over the insect trap and just put a new one on. You just keep them separated, and then when I get back, I enter them into the database and put them in a binder. Pretty straightforward. Yeah. So if you had to explain what your job description is or, like, what you do to your parents or your friends or family, what would you say? I always say, how much time do you have? <laughs> Very difficult thing to explain. It's what I do, but... What I do in the context of Hubbard Brook is an entirely different thing. You can't leave out all the other important things that happen to Hubbard Brook, aside from what I do. So it has to be part of a larger conversation. But my family still doesn't know what I do. They have to ask me over and over, what do you do again? If I have to summarize it briefly, I say I am in charge of the collection and processing of stream water and precip samples as part of a long-term chemistry record. That's the one-sentence answer. That's pretty concise. As members of the field team, Ian and Tammy are responsible for doing the fundamental scientific work that makes research possible. That requires them to take on many different roles and to be skilled at all of them. They're also the ones who work with scientists to make sure that their experiments are possible. 
would you call yourself a scientist? Like, do you think of yourself that way? I do, yeah. I mean, I'm part of the Committee of Scientists. I think scientifically, but, you know, I have a strong technological background, which sometimes helps ground scientists a little bit. What do you mean? Scientists a lot of times think more abstractly and not realistically. I'm more the person to tell them whether something's possible or not. So, you know, just as an example, John Campbell, one of the Forest Service scientists, asked me a few years ago, he said, Ian, me and Lindsay would like to do an ice storm experiment. Do you think you could make that happen? And, you know, I'm the person that has to figure out exactly what entailed to make that happen. You know, they come up with the grandiose idea, and luckily we were able to do that. But, you know, sometimes it's like, I don't think so, you know, and, you know, I have to figure out ways to do it differently or give them different ideas. That makes sense. Yeah, that's science. <laughs> yeah, yeah it's... that's science, yeah. Though they're definitely yeah, in many different directions, that. data collection is a core part of Tammy and Ian's jobs. The process itself can look really different depending on the project, though. You collect every Monday, right? Every Monday, yes, for 20 years. Wow. So you go out into the field. Are you like writing in a notebook these numbers or do you bring a computer with you? So there's a lot of preparation work involved. Mm -hmm. Since we're measuring chemistry, everything that we use has to be very clean. So I do a lot of washing and bottle prep, not just bottles, but also our precip collectors. In the summer, we use a funnel bottle setup. In the winter, we use these snow buckets. And I mean, we have various bottles that we collect in depending on, on what the analysis is for. And everything gets cleaned and tested before we go out in the field. So I will acid wash the bottles before they go in the field. Excuse me, I don't acid wash the bottles that I collect in. I just rinse them with deionized water and soak them over the weekend. I do that on Fridays typically. And then on Monday mornings before I go out in the field, I test the bottles for cleanliness using a conductivity meter. And then I don't use a computer. I use a notebook, a field notebook. And note-taking is a very, very important part of my job because I am the eyes of the forest and the stream. So I have to record what I see. Anything I can think of that will potentially impact chemistry, I record. And I also record plants and wildlife that I see. I, I love taking notes. It's definitely something that I think I'm pretty good at. And I've had people tell me that my notes have given them insights to things that they couldn't find elsewhere. So. Um, yeah, I take a lot of notes. That's awesome. Your notes sound to me like wilderness poetry, <laughs> like like something that some poet would spend weeks in the woods trying to capture. That That's awesome. Thank you. This winter, I started taking pretty extensive notes on ice cover on the streams, ice and snow cover, because my observations have been that the streams are opening up more in the winters than they have in the past. And... We're not sure what kind of impact that, that will have on, you know, especially algae and scouring and different processes. So I've been taking notes on how many times the stream opened up, how thick the ice is, whether, you know, percent coverage of snow and ice. And what I hope to do is to go back in the record and look at former notes of my own and, and former technicians to see if things have been changing in the winter. Because in my experience, they have been. People say, well, what's the biggest change you've observed? And it's definitely in the winter with the streams being more open. Right. And that's because it's the winters are getting warmer? Air temperatures are increasing. Snowpack is decreasing. And we're also getting more frequent rain on snow events. 
So rain on snow, would, we could have a, a, the whole snow and ice that have been building up since November. You could lose it in February and then rebuild it again. Mm-hmm. This might be a hyperbole, but it sounds like you're watching like climate change happen. I agree. Yeah, the power of observation. being It's important, especially for many of the scientists that do their work there, They some of them don't get into the field. So I have the opportunity to, to really document what, what I see document things that cannot be collected by sensors at 15-minute time intervals. In the past decade, the field techs at Hubbardbrook have transitioned from only collecting data by hand to incorporating digital sensors that can take several measurements every hour, instead of just one once a week. Still, the field researchers have to check that data manually before it can be published online in huge government databases where researchers can access it freely from all over the world. It's wild to me that with everything that's going on right now that science is still happening we're really lucky in that generally you know you can collect data here with a very minimal staff that's really cool yeah so when i started here data was written onto charts so you know since i've been here things have changed 100 percent in how we collect data what's like the biggest change and what's something that hasn't really changed at all wow yeah, I guess our, just our, the way we collect data is definitely the biggest change. So, you know, we have over 60 data loggers out in the forest that send data every hour to our office. And they're collecting on either a, a five-minute or a 15-minute timestamp. And we have, we're taking pictures every day from all different locations in the forest, and pictures of our weirs, you know, for quality control, all those sorts of things. I guess the thing that hasn't changed is you know, how people collaborate with each other, you know, uh, bouncing ideas off each other for science. Ever since I've been here, you know, the quality of the data is our number one thing. So, uh, and the dedication of the staff is always totally amazes you. People will come in, you know, on holidays or, you know, in really bad weather to, to get the data that we're acquiring. That's a lot of dedication. Yeah. yeah. So the data that you guys are collecting, it goes into these like really big databases, right? Yeah. I mean, the data the Forest Service collects is, you know, collected by the federal government. So anybody can use it. And I really like that. You know, there's some scientists that don't like to share their data, but, you know, I think it's really important to share as widely as you can because you want to get the best bang for your buck for what you're doing. For sure. Yeah. When a lightning storm or something like that happens and there's a gap in the data or if, I don't know, uh, a beaver runs into a, a water sampler, what happens then? Like, what do you what do? You do? Um, there, there's ways to backfill that data. You, you know, we've collected data for so long that we can actually, you know, use models to take data from a different site and figure out what was supposed to happen. I mean, if the whole system went down, that'd be bad, you know, like a solar flare thing, you know, but generally every one of our sites has a data logger and that data logger is a computer that can collect data for like up to three years. So even if all of our networking part of it failed, still be collecting data. Gotcha. Yeah, so there's a lot of backups and every bit of our data, you know, gets 
comes onto a computer here, but then it gets backed up at a University of New Hampshire's server, and it also gets backed up on a Forest service. And then we also, you know, have one of those portable hard drives backing it up on the computer here. So pretty valuable to not let that get lost. As a reward for their attention to detail, Ian and Tammy have the privilege of getting to know this forest far more intimately than those who don't get the chance to go into the field. And as a result, they more fully understand just how vibrant, ever-changing, and alive Hubbard Brook really is. The experience of being in the forest is something that I definitely feel like I'm missing out on. Um, what Can you tell me like a little bit about what it's like for you? Like, Where do you walk around? Like, What does it look like and sound like? Winter is my favorite season because it's so quiet in the winter, and I love how quiet it is. Aside from my snowmobile, of course, it's just so peaceful and beautiful and, and crystalline. There's nothing that makes me happier than being out in the snow with blue sky and the sun shining and ice on the trees. It's just, it's just spectacular. As opposed to the summer, which is also beautiful but very different, it is alive with birdsong and the sound of the leaves of course rain sounds very different on the north side in the softwoods it's not as loud as it's rain falling on leaves so yeah the, the seasons are, are all different you can hear leaves falling in the fall you can hear them hit the ground when the wind blows yes yeah, those are basically the sounds i hear and of course the water the flows are, are very different depending on the time of the year um during after a high flow or rain event the, the, the streams are so loud you can hear, hear the water as you're approaching them and then this time of year right now it's very dry so not much water sound um and then you can't hear the streams at all unless you chop a hole through the ice and then you can hear the, the street the water under the snowpack and the ice so very yeah. different seasonally makes sense i'll go back to a, a quick story there was a grad student here working at hoverbrook and one week she said, Ian, would you take me on the rounds? And the rounds is when we collect data and we go for a long hike and you know look at different instruments and collect information. And she walked around with me that day and she said after the walk, Ian, I can't believe you have to do this every week. In my mind, every week when I go for a walk or go out in the woods, it's totally different. You know, one week um, there'll be a fresh coat of frost on the ground or hoarfrost coming up from the dirt, or there'll be grouse that I see, or the star flowers will come in bloom, or the lady slippers will come in bloom, or the leaves will be changing color to, you know, for the fall, or the buds will be bursting. Right now it's in the 90s, and during the winter it can be minus 20 degrees Fahrenheit. Six months of the year we use snowmobile and you know we walk on the mirror lake where it's covered in ice that's almost two feet thick and you know now it's hot as the dickens right <laughs> so and, and then the other part of that when i was thinking about that you know she said it's so boring i'm thinking she's going to get her phd and she's going to be sitting in a cubicle right grant proposals all the time and I'm still out here enjoying myself, you know, seeing all these things, you know, from black flies, which bite you, to freezing cold temperatures that can uh, really challenge you out in the field. And in ecology and environmental science labs all around the country, lab technicians and field workers are crucial to the success of research projects. 
Science is a team sport, and it's so important to recognize and appreciate what each player contributes, especially when the dedication of people who are collecting the data that academics rely on is too often taken for granted. Why is the work that you do important to you and valuable to you? It's important to me because I play a key role in the outcome of the science. You read papers about the science of cover brook and I am the person who actually collects those samples. So without my attention to detail, without my ability to get out around in the forest, without my notes, my observations, I think the science would have less integrity. I feel I play a, a, a different role. I'm, not, I'm obviously not an academic. I'm a field person and I'm a lab person. I take great pride in the way I process the samples the same way, and that's my contribution to the science. I would say that's a little humbled. Without you, the science wouldn't happen. Like, period. <laughs> there would be no science. <laughs> well, thank you. I'm, I'm so appreciative of my job. I just hope I'm always able to do it, because I'm now 52, and it definitely gets more difficult as the years go on, but... I'm going to keep doing it until I no longer can. That's awesome. Um, okay. And then my last question is, what's the weirdest thing that you've brought home from work? I don't, I don't know if I've brought anything weird from work. I mean, if I have anything weird, it stays at work to show different people to ask, like, say, like an owl pellet or moose scat or bear scat or something or some kind of, feather to ID that usually stays at work to show other people. I don't really bring anything home. I'm sorry. <laughs> no worries. Wait, so you're saying that you you pick up, you've picked up the the moose poop? Of course. <laughs> Why? <laughs> to see what they're eating. Pull it apart. Uh, woody vegetation or lush vegetation. Same thing with bear, bear scat. I found a birthday candle in a bear scat once that was pretty interesting. <laughs> Yeah, no. <laughs> you just, like, pick it up with your hands? Uh, well, well, I mean, I'll get down on my hands and knees and poke around in it with a stick, but I, I wouldn't be afraid to touch it. I, I wouldn't touch human waste, but I don't, I, don't, I don't mind touching wildlife waste, herbivores, and I guess everything's relative, right? That's true. Thank you so much. It really was uh, wonderful. Fuck to you. It sounds like a great project, and I, I can't wait to meet you, too. Make sure you come to the forest. I will. Yes. Awesome. Thank you so much. I hope you have a wonderful rest of your day. Thank you. You too. Bye. People like Tammy and Ian are where science starts at Hubbard Brook and the foundation of the research that goes on at every long-term ecological research site. I'm so glad that I got to talk with them and get to know them. Hopefully I get to meet them in person sometime soon in a context that is not getting rescued from a ditch. Next time, we're going to talk about some of what Ian brought up with the process of filling in data that's missing, and also sharing data with the scientific community at large. See you next time, and take care of yourself. Gather, Share, Teach is written, edited, and produced by me, Tyler Edwards, with support from the Bernhardt Lab, Duke University, and the Hubbard Brook Research Foundation. Our music is from Poddington Bear. The new cover art includes a drawing of me by the lovely Sydney Livingston. Thanks for listening. <laughs>